0: Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again, joined by my friends at Center for Lit, my kids, my son, Ian, and my daughter-in-law, Emily. Welcome, you guys. Hey, hey. Hello. Mom is off today, so we're going to hold down the fort in her absence and hopefully have something uh, resembling an intelligent discussion, even though she's (laughs) not among us. What do you think the chances are?
1: I don't know. I'm Right now, I'm just wondering how we're going to fill up 45 minutes worth of time without her <laughs> filling it up for us.
0: When we Without her providing fodder for you to pick at and throw bombs at and that sort of thing, you mean?
1: That's right. We're, we, uh, there won't be quite as much fisticuffs in this
0: episode, I assume. Well, we'll give her a pass today because she is doing some last minute shopping in preparation for uh, going out to Michigan to watch our daughter graduate from college. And if you don't have the right shoes for an event like that, well, you got to go back to the store. That's right. It's a big deal. (laughs) That's what I've been told, and I'm down with it. I want her to have the right shoes, too. So we'll give her a pass, and we will dive in to a discussion of topics related to the great books and the great Western literary tradition. And I think we're going to continue a uh, practice we started recently of tossing out a quote that somebody's come across in their reading that provoked a thoughtful discussion in their own mind and toss it out into public and see what kind of sparks we can make fly from it. And I think, Emily, you have the quote for today. So give us a little context and tell us what we're going to be chewing on.
2: Well, as you all know, I have been mightily struggling to finish Crime and Punishment since Christmas. And I finally did it on the plane ride home. Thank you, thank you. And so all the way through, it was very bleak, and very depressing, which is part of why I struggled to get through it so quickly.
1: <laughs> in the winter? It was
2: in the winter. In the winter, it was very you really claustrophobic. You chose
1: a winner of a time to read this one, didn't you?
2: <laughs> well, yep, yeah, it was very claustrophobic, and it made me feel a little sick when Ross Konnikov was feeling a little sick. <sighs> so I finally plowed through, and it got better as I went on. The beginning was the worst, the roughest part for me, and then I, I made it through, and I finally, finally got to the end and devoured the last couple chapters and was so pleased. It's wonderful. I should have known, it's always (laughs) wonderful. Mm -hmm. The payoff at the end of a Dostoevsky novel is always worth it. And I wanted to read some passages from the end, which means that this is majorly a spoiler. So (laughs) if you don't know how- Yeah,
1: if you don't know how crime and punishment ends and want it to be a surprise, time one you should pause this episode and and go read it else. Yeah,
2: (laughs) exactly. But for those who are still here, I am going to read two paragraphs from the epilogue in the very final, uh, pages of crime and punishment.
1: You want to give a quick plot refresher for those who maybe haven't read it since college asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done.
2: Well, in the epilogue, Ross Konikov. He has confessed his crime. I'm going to try to be vague because I don't want to. For those who are staying, even though they haven't read it, I he's want to. He's in them. a bad place for a minute. I uh, so he he's in prison in uh, Siberia, and Sonia has followed him out there. And but he's still really struggling, um, and he's very rude to her uh, for about a year. Even though she comes and visits him every day, and then. All of a sudden he has this kind of eureka moment when they're sitting together during a break of his hard work uh, that he's been forced to do, hard labor. But he finds this break and he sits down and she joins him out of nowhere and they're sitting together on this hill and just something new, something intangible just kind of rushes over him and completely changes him from the inside out. And he has this long kind of monologue, interior monologue, thinking about what has just happened. And I'm going to read from there. He was thinking of her. He remembered how he had constantly tormented her and torn her heart. Remembered her poor, thin little face. But he was almost not even tormented by these memories. He knew by what infinite love he would now redeem all her sufferings. And what were they all? All those torments of the past. Everything, even his crime, Even his sentence in exile seemed now to him, in the first impulse, to be some strange external fact, as if it had not even happened to him. However, that evening he could not think long or continuously of anything, could not concentrate his mind on anything. Besides, he would have been unable to resolve anything consciously just then. He could only feel. Instead of dialectics, there was life, and something completely different had to work itself out in his consciousness. The, the line that I want to focus on is the last one. Instead of dialectics, there was life, and something completely different had to work itself out in his consciousness.
0: Hmm. Okay. So first I mean, question. Oh, go ahead, Emily. No, please.
2: Oh, I was just going to add to the context this is obviously important because raskolnikov has been at dialectics the entire novel that's why it's such a rough thing to get through he goes back and forth between thinking analytically um, and very logically about his position he wants to the reason he committed this crime in the first place is that he wanted to step beyond the rules that society places on everyone thinking that this this is what napoleon did he took the step beyond, and this is what gave him the power to to rule and be happy in life. And so Raskolnikov hopes that he too can be this kind of powerful Nietzschean figure stepping beyond the limits, and instead he's tormented, and he tries to reason himself out of, out of that, and he just can't do it.
0: So it's a really, it's the outworking of a theory of his, right? All of his crimes and his ensuing trouble are the the decision to try and act on a theory, a political, social philosophical theory, and then deal with its implications. So that's mm-hmm. what you mean when you say he's been at dialectic this whole time.
2: Right. right? And even, I mean, and it goes both ways, even thinking through um, acts of kindness that he does impulsively throughout the book, he tries to reason with himself about why he has done it and he can't come to any kind of, uh, he, he's always trying to talk himself out of it or, or talk himself into it, tell himself why he did it. And he's trying to control his actions with his mind by power of his intellect. Mm.
0: And so is, this a, is the passage you read a description of the failure
2: of that process? Well, that, I, that's one way to put it.
1: I mean, I guess my question would be, what, is, <clears throat> what does his theory push back against I mean, it sounds like you were saying earlier, and I think this is a pretty apt description, that he's trying to rise above or shake off the fetters of what his society is telling him it means to be a human being and to to realize himself as some sort of Uber man, right? Some sort of higher intellect that isn't uh, in bondage to the expectations of the people around him. Mm-hmm. That's free from free from all of that. And, that, that and, and he envisions that, I imagine, to be a sort of, Radical freedom, where he would then be not just untroubled by their demands and the requirements of society, but also be untroubled by other human things like doubt and fear and pain and that sort of thing. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. But kind of what I want to focus on is the fact that he did all of that dialectically with his... With conversations he was trying to have with himself mm-hmm. in his mind, he was hoping to reason himself to some kind of action. Well, and
0: not just that; he did it actively too, with manipulating people and and using using the people in his life like the like the building blocks of an argument to try and justify right. or to try and uh, position himself in a in a place where he could where he could sustain what he'd done. And true? all of
1: that to convince himself that it, that he was a that he was a mind first and foremost rather than a
2: human and a figure to be admired. He, right. he, Alexander, Napoleon; these were the figures he was looking up to, and so everything he did was to to make himself valuable. One of the reasons he's so depressed when he fails in his own mind to escape guilt and um, the need to confess is that he he thinks of himself as less valuable. He did not rise up to being the Superman.
0: Uh, he failed to be the he failed to be the Superman and so that's the source of his what feels like defeat now here at the end. I think it's really interesting that you're that we're talking about this character as someone who's who has exerted himself throughout the course of the novel. And by the way, the, the quote you read is right at the end, right? Right In the on the last page even. He's exerted himself throughout the course of the novel to, throw off the rules that bind everyone else and to be completely separate from them, to be completely separate from the consequences of his actions, to reason himself, as you say, Emily, by dialectic into a position where he's not responsible, where those things don't have a hold on him. They don't touch him in the same way that they touch other people. And the way that the that Dostoevsky describes his state of mind here at the end is very similar to that. In the translation I have, uh, and what were all the agonies of the past, everything, even his crime, his sentence and imprisonment seemed to him now in the first rush of feeling an external strange fact with which he had no concern. That's in other words, so he's free of all that right. stuff, right? Go, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Emily.
2: No, I love that because I. it's not about the crime. It's so easy to talk about this and say, well, He was trying to reason himself into sin, but we can't do that. And so we're we're drawn back to the law no matter what, which is certainly true. But the answer for him is you can imagine a Raskolnikov who had some different circumstances. And what that Raskolnikov does is try to dialect or uh, rationalize himself into moral action
0: Mm -hmm.
2: that he he's constantly trying to to reason himself into the right action just because his standards are ones that we don't agree with the standards aren't the point it's the way that he was trying to reach his own goals uh, and yeah.
0: standards and so what he's what he's describing here is being free from that kind of bondage which says my my standards and my rules are the things that define me is that kind of what is that kind of what you see emily
2: that's certainly part of it but the uh, there's it's it's the feeling at the end that ends up mattering, well, not that, the yeah. intellect, not the dialect. Mm-hmm. That's kind of
1: what I was talking about earlier is that the whole the whole move, the whole dialectical move that he's been trying to make this whole time is an effort to remove himself from the context of his humanity and to convince himself that he is more mind than than body, spirit, or whatever spirit. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and what happens here at the end is. Um, feeling works on him, and it does so in such a way that he cannot, using his mind, filter and therefore command what his feelings will be about any of this. And it's the final nail in the coffin. It's proof that he hasn't really ever been able to do that all along, but it's obvious to him in a way that it's been obvious to the reader that he can no longer actually do that. That there are some things that work on the human being, and that that's part of what it means to be a human being. But you don't actually get to choose all of your stimulus and yeah. sort out you appreciate from the ones that you don't and reject them
2: right he couldn't he couldn't rationalize himself into happiness it was a gift that came outside mm. upon him and he is not conscious of the way that it happened it's a feeling it's not a direct it's consequence a thought.
0: yeah the a couple of paragraphs before the the moment itself is described like this it says how it happened he did not know But all at once, something seemed to seize him and fling him at her feet, speaking of Sonia. He wept and threw his arms round her knees. For the first instant, she was terribly frightened, and she turned pale. She jumped up and looked at him, trembling. But at the same moment, she understood, and a light of infinite happiness came into her eyes. She knew and had no doubt that he loved her beyond everything, and that at last the moment had come.
2: I love that. It's totally passive. Something flings him. He's yeah. the object of that sentence.
0: And importantly, he doesn't know where it comes from or how to how to describe it. So the whole dialectical process is out the window, right? Yeah. So what are what do you make of it? And Liam and how would you how would you chew on that idea in your own circumstance, in your own era? What is Dostoevsky saying across the ages, as far as you can tell?
2: Well, I, I thought it was interesting that dialectic is kind of a hot buzzword in classical circles. It's another word for one of the stages of learning, right? Grammar, logic, or dialectic and rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that Dostoevsky, and it, this also reminded me of Tolstoy, Anna Karenina, those Russians always seem to be pointing us back to... Feeling, mm. whereas educational paradigms often target the head mm. and the intellect. So, I guess I wanted to open up a conversation about education.
0: Mm. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So, the implication then of if Dostoevsky is making a suggestion about what moves us and what transforms and what actually brings about change when If something else failed for 500 pages, what is the, what's the implication that we just got to feel?
2: Well, one of the other factors in the novel is that he's being pushed into suffering and Sonia Uh goes with him into suffering. And so that here at the end, in the paragraphs that we read, as you pointed out, it's, it's not that he should have avoided the crime. In fact, the crime ends up being something completely other but it was the occasion for this, that he would Mm. not have reached this new state of soul if the crime had not been committed.
0: That is an arresting thought.
2: And it's a deplorable crime. It's Dostoevsky does not let us get out of this. It is horrifying. It's a cold blooded double murder, right? Yeah. And his descriptions are horrifying of the murder itself. And there is no way to get out of it. And Sonia, by the way, is a prostitute. He has taken some of the worst in our own minds sins that there are and put them together.
1: Hmm.
2: Hmm.
0: I lost my train of thought. It was going somewhere too. I was going to have a nice riposte to that. And I can't remember what it is.
2: Well, uh, Konnikov. One of the education kind of is at the heart of the novel because he is a former student. He drops mm-hmm. out because he's pursuing this theory, but he is considered by everyone he's around as an educated fellow.
0: Yes. It's published articles, I think, right? Mm-hmm. His goal is to become a scholar and a published, he published uh, scholarly articles in journals and things like that. Philosophical, ph- philosophical journals. Right.
1: Philosophically.
0: Yeah. Philosoph- Philosoph- <laughs> <laughs> So one implication then of this experience here at the end is that there's something about the heart and the spirit that the mind can't touch and that the two are separately to be considered when it yeah, comes to education.
1: I, yeah, I agree with that. And I think that um, Dostoevsky is on about this in a lot of different places o- over the course of his writings, obsessed with the question of what makes a human being and um, and disturbed by and this is one of the reasons his work has is is lumped in with the rest of the existentialist philosophers disturbed by locating the seed of humanity in the intellect because the intellect is so easily perverted twisted and overthrown and i I think that's one of the things that we see in raskolnikov's journey is that he quite literally thinks himself into depraved oblivion Mm -hmm. and it takes um it takes the the blessed fact that human beings are more acted upon than acting when you get right down to it to snatch him out of that. Otherwise, he'd be totally
2: lost. I was Interesting. scrolling on Instagram, and I came across that verse in Proverbs. Someone had posted it as their quote. Do not lean on your own understanding. What's the other part of it? Uh, uh, trust, trust God and yeah, do not lean on your, your own. Trust in the Lord with all
0: your heart and yeah, lean not on your That's own it. understanding.
2: That's it. And I was thinking about how I feel like, we take that and then we think for ourselves in a complete circle around it that we say, do not lean on your own understanding and go, okay, I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. And then I use my understanding to remember that I'm not going to lean so I'm <laughs> leaning on my understanding that I'm not going to lean on my understanding, but I'm going to think about it really hard so that I don't do it. <laughs> and then that way, I will not be leaning on my own understanding. Yeah, su-
1: suddenly, your whole your whole faith depends on being able to remember the right set of precepts.
2: I'm going to lean on my understanding to trust God now.
0: So, okay, so I see what you're driving at. And it seems like Dostoevsky might be driving at that, too, by describing Raskolnikov in a situation where something happens to him that he doesn't understand, it throws him at Sonia's feet, and there is a love in his heart for her that he can't explain, and that when he goes back to look at his past actions, he sees them as if they are a string of events that are completely unconnected with him. In other words, the intellectual connection is, has been destroyed, and that's something that's happened to him as a passive recipient. He hasn't tried to remember anything. In fact, the remembering is is uh, is completely futile. Right?
2: Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs>
0: That is interesting, and so and so you're interested in the implications of that statement for education, which I yeah, think is one of
2: them. I mean, I'm, a
1: very risky thing to think.
2: <laughs> it is a risky thing to think.
1: I guess the question I think the question that Emily is asking is: Are we educators uh, creating philosophical experimenters who are going to become double axe murderers?
2: <laughs> Seems to be <laughs> the question
1: of all of
0: this. There's certainly something passive about the picture that that Dostoyevsky paints and that you draw our attention to in Raskolnikov. I mean, and maybe you say he finally receives an education here at the end. He finally understands something, if we can use that term very, very loosely. He gets something with his guts that is the the sumum bonum of the novel. Mm-hmm. Right? So he, if there's an education to be had in this novel he gets it here at the end through some Mm -hmm. other channel entirely than his brains.
2: Yeah. Books tend to be the occasion that we get an education, but uh, Dostoevsky wrote the novel so that we didn't have to go and have our lives ruined by murdering someone. We get to experience that it becomes the occasion for us to have an education, but it's not the, the convincing ourselves and the reasoning ourselves and the knowing the right things and the, the books themselves aren't the education. It's the experience that comes out of the books. It's I think the education. that's an
0: important distinction. And it's a hard one In if what we're using is an art form composed of words, mm. right? Because the words enter through the eyeballs mm. and then and thence to the brain. And in mm. order to understand them, you have to know the technical aspects of the language. And the better your grammar and the better your vocabulary and the better your... Knowledge of history, of language, and history of history, then the easier time you have digesting a work of art that's built of words. And yet, you're saying the thing that great literature gives us maybe is spiritually discerned,
2: or hmm. is a gift that is given to us when our eyes are open to see it.
1: Hmm. That's all. That... I'm interested. Go ahead. Ian. I'm interested by a by an aspect of Raskolnikov that I and and it has um been a minute i was truly asking for a friend earlier <laughs> um i seem to remember raskolnikov being pretty tormented by by inactivity for quite some time before he goes ahead and mm-hmm. commits a double murder
2: it's true he's kind of dostoevsky's hamlet figure right right but i think exactly. that's why there are notes that, that that was kind of what he was going for yeah it's sort of a it's sort of hamlet
1: He's tormented by inactivity. And it strikes me that that is a common feature of, I don't know what a good term to put to it would be, but dead intellectualism, perhaps. The idea that you, you have retreated into a world that is the world of your mind and that there isn't anyone to relate to in there. And what it leads to is no matter how many things you've read, or how many ideas you're grappling with, you're doing so in a, in a sterile environment. Because you can't actually survive without relational stimulus. You're a human being. We're built to need that. And so Raskolnikov, Raskolnikov essentially, looking at it through that lens, surrenders to the fear that nothing will ever happen to him and commits murder. Because there has to be some sort of tactile relational application of all these ideas that he's struggling through. And at the end of the story, I think it's a different kind of surrender, but it's thrust on him by the same set of forces that he was trying to manufacture himself. Yeah. Yeah. I can see there's actually get an education with your brain. You get it from people. Does that make sense?
0: I think so. That's kind of what I was alluding to a minute ago. There's this, the strange parallelism in uh, what he was trying by illicit means to construct in the novel. And what is, what is given to him from above, as it were in the epilogue, this, the ability to rise above circumstances and, commune directly with you know the spirit of God I think is the implication in the in the epilogue but it might have been he would have put it in different terms in the rest of the novel to rise above the circumstances of the world and be the ubermensch or whatever mm-hmm. well, it's a,
2: th- it's a desire to not have your actions determined I mean he, he was going for having his actions be what determined his identity mm-hmm. but he was always trying to be free of that kind of mundane existence to be defined by by common existence and he he gets that in the end he Mm -hmm. isn't defined by Mm -hmm. what he did anymore there is something higher than that that he communes with
1: but it's but it's dependent on being mediated through another person
0: Hmm. i didn't notice that i think i see what you're saying and I yeah, yeah I wasn't I wasn't uh, acknowledging that human element, but the presence of Sonia at the end of the novel certainly underscores that she's the mediator of
1: Well, yeah. The I mean, any redemption that comes along in the story, it seems to me, comes straight from Sonia. And it, and it's I mean, it, Dostoevsky is a Christian man; it comes from God, but it but it's mediated through Sonia certainly. And it strikes me that might provide us with an answer to Emily's suggestion about education and the, the comments that Dostoevsky is making about education that it's far less about the number of books you've read and the ideas that you have encountered um, than it is about the context in which you've encountered them and the people alongside whom you are fighting through them and sorting through them and that sort of thing. In other words, the education isn't quite so much about the curriculum as, is, as it is about the the relational aspect. That's really powerful.
2: Although that's certainly there with the authors too. You can take that into the fact that when you're reading, you're conducting a sort of relationship Mm. with the author too Mm -hmm. and it still needs to be practiced among community but
1: yeah that's true because Raskolnikov I mean maybe towards the beginning of the novel he's interacting with some other writers but he's he's pretty myopically self-focused he's he's trying to learn by creating ideas to then meditate on I mean it's it's awfully Mm self-reflective the whole time
0: that idea that that Sonia is the mediator of his Raskolnikov's spiritual life and his feeling and his sensitivity comes really strongly in a passage that I always come back to when I'm reading Crime and Punishment and that I have probably read on Bibliophiles before, but I'm going to do it again. And it's the, uh, the moment when he f- confesses to her that he's committed the murder and she doesn't run away in terror. And he says, then you won't leave me, Sonia, he said, looking at her almost with hope. And Sonia, who's crushed and and weeping, says, no, no, never, nowhere, cried Sonia. I will follow you. I will follow you everywhere. Oh, my God, how miserable I am. And then a few lines later, together, together, I'll follow you to Siberia. I'm always moved by that passage because what she says is not, oh, how miserable you are, you double murderer, but oh, how miserable I am because I identify with you and I will follow you anywhere even to mm-hmm. Siberia. And I think that's the beginning of when, of the relationship that ends with him falling at her feet and receiving that, you know, the spiritual sense or the education as Emily's been implying. And you're right, Ian, it's mediated through, through Sonia for sure. Mm. So I, that's an interesting implication of, for our discussion of education that it, it comes. Well, I, if I, as I, say it out loud, it's obvious. It comes by definition in the context of relationship, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. So
0: if we're working on a, a, uh, a thumbnail definition of education, so far in just this first part of Bibliophiles we have, it doesn't come through your head, it comes through something else, and it comes through relationships. Mm-hmm. So the image of a guy reading a book by himself <laughs> doesn't match quite as well as we thought it did maybe half an hour ago. although that's what
2: that's what i was trying to say there's an element of that relationship with the author when you're reading correctly right when you're not when you're not doing the dialectics thing right when you're not trying to to argue with him while you're reading when you're letting him be the one to speak
0: Hmm. yeah the implications of that idea just for for something as mundane as reading you know leave, leave beside the grand questions of education more generally for a second but just the mundane act of reading and what it means and what is possible in that moment and what we could be looking for. I mean, I think this discussion has bearing on that. If as we're decoding words and putting together sentences and applying contextual details that we have from elsewhere in our lives to this process, if we're looking for something to happen at the soul level, at the non-intellectual level at the same time, maybe that's the, maybe that's the highest outcome is it that's a that's a portentous thought i mean on the one hand you can't really have that experience with crime and punishment unless you understand the translation that you're reading (laughs) right maybe your experience of raskolnikov's moment is different than his but doesn't Dostoevsky write at some level to say hey reader have raskolnikov's experience even though you haven't committed a double axe murder doesn't he Mm. Mm-hmm. isn't he trying to in to to create the conditions for raskolnikov's experience in his readers surely he is
2: well yeah and he does so very effectively you like i was saying i, I felt sick reading it and it was identifiable it was guilt and shame and and fear that is easily recognizable i recognized it in myself
0: hmm and what about this, this uh, release and climax of, of spiritual feeling at the end? Did you feel that as well?
2: Well, yeah, it, it's, I mean, a version of it, but I kind of left feeling there is a relief in the idea that I don't have to reason myself into feeling it. Mm-hmm. I've understood the author and listened to what he has to say and that kind of release is something that happens in my own life Mm -hmm. in God's own time Mm -hmm. and not me trying to force myself into it.
1: Yeah. Well, and the other beautiful application of that idea that Dostoevsky is again, super faithful to deliver over and over again throughout his writings is that life is happily uh, a process of learning to care about the other instead of yourself Mm -hmm. and learning to spend intellectual energy and emotional energy on the other instead of oneself. And, Mm -hmm. By the end here, I think the freedom for Raskolnikov, and he's clear about it, it doesn't come from a reversal of his circumstances, no, being no. freed from Siberia, or any of that. It comes from a moment of seeing Sonia. Right. I mean, didn't that passage start with, he saw her, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden his eyes are, are wide open to the beating heart and the um, the alive soul next to him. Mm-hmm. And it's focus on her and and a resolution to spend the rest of his life loving her. Yeah. Yeah. That frees him, which is what you might call radical selflessness, self-emptying. Yep. yep. and I think that's that's Dostoevsky, That's always Dostoevsky's answer. He always comes along and says, "Self-emptying, hmm. that is the only way." Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's but right.
2: It's not a self-emptying that he convinces himself into. Mm-mm.
1: No, yeah, you're right. You're right. Dostoevsky doesn't say self-emptying. So get about the business of emptying it's a, yourself. It's a three-step process. Here's how you do it. Right. You know, he's what he says is self-emptying will happen to you. Yeah. Keep an eye out. That's what he says.
0: Or to, to go back to something Emily said a minute ago, he's saying, lean not on your own understanding. Mm-hmm. But that isn't a recipe because the moment you try and make it a recipe, then you're doing what the, what the adage forbids. So maybe the, the most that can be said of Dostoevsky is he's describing a reality perhaps that he's experienced. In in hopes maybe that the describing of it will put us in the way of it too, and you can't really mm-hmm. go you can't really go further than that in in, mm-hmm. in, yeah, in putting well a said. purpose in his mind. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's well said. I think I'm moved most by the um, ability of Sonia in that last group of chapters to empty herself. And that, that throws me back on an old discussion that we have a lot about what the, what the effect of an example like that in literature has on the heart. Because we're talking about you know, having a, a heart-level reaction to a profound description of what the author seems to think is a spiritual truth. By setting up exemplars that are going through that, is his hope to cause that experience us does does my respect for Sonia or my love for that character or my identification with that character the way that I weep when I read about her uh, is the hope that that will that that reaction will produce some sort of selflessness in me I wish I were as selfless as Sonia I can see that that's a better way to be mm-hmm. than the way I am I'm Raskolnikov to the Sonia's in my life a lot what is the go ahead Emily
2: Well, I think it, there is a life that comes out of that, but the instant you start saying, well, I should X, Y, Z, because X, Y, Z, that's dialectics, right? Mm -hmm. That's logic. Mm -hmm. You're, you, you've twisted the life into logic.
0: So the real question is, what is the literary purpose or function or role of the exemplar? That's, that's a question I'm interested in, because I'm after what you're after, I think, Emily, it. I want to have Raskolnikov's experience, and uh, to the extent that crime and punishment can help me to it, I want to partake of it. Mm -hmm. Is is literary exemplar the way to go? Is that the right idea?
2: I don't know. First of all, I think it's hilarious that you're calling her an exemplar when she's... A prostitute who, by the way, she never says, well, I shouldn't be a prostitute anymore, so I'm going to stop. It's just- And
1: presumably she's right. supporting herself in Siberia because I don't think he's getting paid for this manual labor gig.
2: Well, she, becomes, she com- becomes a seamstress. She does end up changing profession, but there's not a, it's because her circumstances change. There's literally no one in Siberia. So like, there's only, she has to, there's a need to fill that she has there, but it, there's no moral discussion on that issue. No. And so he has you kind of in a trap there. Yes, as well. <laughs> I
0: see what you're saying. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I mean, her, her, um, her selfless devotion, her emptying of herself, is so profound and so productive of a good result in Raskolnikov and in his life that it's hard to it's hard to falter at all. Well, I I, I think the reason I brought up the issue of the exemplars because the, the way you started today, Emily, was was kind of by laying an axe to the root of that whole idea.
1: Hmm. No pun intended. Or,
0: <laughs> or a hatchet. Mm-hmm. That, that um, Raskolnikov is an, isn't an exemplar of anything. He is just a mm-hmm. passive recipient of something completely outside of himself. And maybe the right way to look at Sonya is that she is similarly acted upon and saved by grace, if you will.
2: Yeah, and kind of also Raskonikov, that he's the one who takes her out of her circumstances. Hmm. Anyway, I I would go back to the quote, the quote we're focusing on, that instead of dialectics, there was life, and something completely different had to work itself out in his consciousness. Hmm. The translator made that passive too. Something completely different had to work itself out. Not he had to work it out. The something had to work itself out.
0: Interesting. I wonder if my translation has it is in a passive voice as well. Yep, life had stepped into the place of theory, and something quite different would work itself out in his mind.
2: And then the next paragraph is uh, it goes back to Lazarus, which is a continuous image in the book. Under his pillow lay the Gospels. He took the book out mechanically. It belonged to her. It was the same one from which she had read to him about the raising of Lazarus the thing about Lazarus is that he didn't choose to be raised from death to Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. It was done to him. Mm
0: -hmm. He didn't think himself into resurrection.
2: Right. Right.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's profound. The raising of dead corpses is the symbol that Dostoevsky gives us to attach to this glorious reconciliation resurrection rehabilitation whatever you want to call it of the protagonist the raising of a corpse
2: I think it's interesting that the movement Raskolnikov makes isn't from quote sin to virtue from murder to a moral life it's from death Mm -hmm. and depression to life Mm -hmm. the 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 noun that he uses is there was life
0: there was life yeah yeah So he's, in in every way but physically, he's resurrected, not rehabilitated Mm -hmm. at the end.
2: Yeah, it does make you, he has these strange words at the end of the epilogue that make you think that there's going to be a sequel. He did not even know that a new life would not be given him for nothing, but it still had to be dearly bought to be paid for with a great deed. But here begins a new account. The account of a man's gradual renewal, the account of his gradual regeneration, his gradual transition from one world to another, his acquaintance with a new, hitherto, completely unknown reality. It's I'm presumably, given the words that Dostoevsky uses, he isn't going to be perfect now. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's gradual regeneration.
0: Great striving, great suffering, my translation says. But then he ends by saying, uh, that might be the subject of a new story, but our present story is ended. And he very, not only does he, by the way, self-consciously end the story before he tells of Raskolnikov's rehabilitation, but he also puts these two chapters where we read of his resurrection in an epilogue. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting, that the story proper ends with his confession doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The, the epilogue is the last is the last two chapters of the book and the it was I killed the old pawnbroker woman and da 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 da, da. Raskolnikov repeated his statement. That's the end of the book as he's confessing to the murder. So that really the story is the story of his death. Mm-hmm. And then as an epilogue, we get the story of his resurrection. I, I don't know what to make of that. But I've always thought that was remarkable.
2: He, it's almost like he gave us everything we needed to know in his death. But in case you missed it, <laughs> here's here's one more go.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder if that reminds me to ask if Flannery O'Connor might have been working in the Dostoevsky tradition when she ended all of her brutal short stories before the resolution, just left the guy dead. And, we, and sitting in the destruction of all of his works. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Dostoevsky is softer hearted than O'Connor. He gives us the epilogue.
2: Yeah. Hurrah Matsov is pretty cheesy.
0: (laughs) It's in the same vein though, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is.
0: So final thoughts, implications of this quote for uh, life among reading people in the 21st century.
2: Well, I tend to do a lot of dialectics and I always overthink everything and, overthink what i say and overthink what i've said and mm. overthink what i'm going to do and what i should do and shouldn't do mm. and so what i hear is that that can stop that mm. it's okay to stop thinking for a second because that's it's not unlike the gravity and grace that in the silence that's when the life has a chance to come in
0: mm. that is encouraging it's encouraging for all worker bees and slavers under the weight of great moment i think of uh, the 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 thought that i take away from it is that like raskolnikov we are all waiting Mm -hmm. for education for enlightenment for resurrection in the deepest sense Mm -hmm. and uh it the the works that we perform to try and bring those things about are disconnected from us. The way they were, just dis- Raskolnikov's crimes were disconnected from him, and that we are just like Raskolnikov, dependent on love and grace from outside, and everything depends on whether there is a giver of love and grace outside, who is disposed toward us, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a very scary place to stand. But nevertheless, the point of, I think, that quote is, there we stand. And if there is a giver out there, we are fortunate indeed. And if there isn't, we are most to be pitied. (laughs) That's what I think. Well, all right, then. Having said that amazingly profound thing, I think we should adjourn. If there are no thoughts from the peanut gallery, if you listeners are not shouting at your radios or iPhones and throwing bricks and tomatoes, I think we will adjourn and put this episode up in our archives. Thank you for listening, everyone, to another episode of Bibliophiles. We will be joining you again soon. Meanwhile, we invite you to rate the podcast and give us your thoughts and comments. Also swing by our various websites and see what we're up to in the world of reading and parenting and homeschooling, centerforlit.com, pelicansociety.com. And also, don't forget to listen to our other podcast, Radio Read-Along, where we feature original recordings of classic stories interspersed with high-level discussions among the Center for Lit crew. That's Radio Read-Along, also available everywhere you get your podcasts. That'll do it for this episode, my friends. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Mm -hmm. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode.
2: Until next time.
0: Happy reading, everyone.